This episode is brought to you by Anchor. Anchor makes it super easy to create a podcast. Record or edit right from your phone or computer, add music and effects, and then publish. With one click, Anchor will distribute your podcast to Spotify, Apple, and all the other platforms. And here's the best thing. Anchor will help you make money from your podcast by finding you sponsors. We use Anchor here on Talk Money, and it's everything we need in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Now on to the show. Well, this is the 10th house that we've offered on. We're even offering over asking price most of the time, and we're still not getting these. What gives? Home buying sounds exhausting. And if you're a first-time home buyer, there's a whole mess of things you just won't know. This is Talk Money, and I'm your host, Mesh Lakani. Now, it's my job to demystify all the things your money goes into, empowering you to make better decisions. I've had a career in investing over the last 10 years, and I've seen how companies can prey on our lack of knowledge and ignorance. Let's turn the tables. Let's be prepared for some of the most important financial decisions of our lives. On today's episode, First Time Home Buying, Part 1. According to the Wall Street Journal, home prices have risen about 50% in the last decade, and many more of the more affordable markets have shot up even faster. Investors are buying in the affordable markets now too. All these factors make it harder to buy a home. Today we're going to learn how to think about buying a home and is it right for you? How to find a realtor, how to find value, make an offer, and be competitive. Because trust me, you're going to have to be competitive. And then in part two, we'll learn how the mortgage process works and what the future holds. Maybe you don't think you fit the mold of a traditional buyer. So what options exist for you? My personal experience, I helped my mom buy a home and it was very stressful. There were things we weren't prepared for, things that I couldn't even imagine. It all worked out, but even something as standard as getting a mortgage was surprisingly out of reach. Lessons learned, I'm well prepared for the next go around. But I want to help you if you're thinking, even just thinking of buying your next home. So, should you buy a home? Obviously, that is a very personal question for a lot of people, and it depends on what you're looking for. That's my friend Jordan Greist. Jordan is a developer in Washington, D.C., and has a ton of experience buying and selling homes. He's built and sold over 20 homes. I think everybody should aspire to buy their own home. It's definitely more expensive this day and age to buy a home. The most important thing that you can look at if you're buying in a neighborhood are the comps, the comparables. Um, it's basically just a home that's very similar to the one that you're looking at that costs a certain amount. You can bet your bottom dollar that's probably going to be very similar to the cost that you're going to offer for your own house. So uh, a good real estate agent is going to send you a list of comps for a place that you may be interested in. They're going to say, all right, well, if you're looking at a four-bedroom, three-bath house, here's another four-bedroom, three-bath house in the same neighborhood that went for this price. It's probably going to be pretty similar. That's how real estate goes. Everything is is looking around and seeing what everybody else is doing uh, in order to you know give yourself a baseline for what you want to do. If you're looking for a home, you know, number one, you want something large enough for you and your family. But number two, you know that there's some room to grow in the price and it's going to appreciate. Um, you certainly want to keep that in mind. I think if you're going to pay top dollar for something that's brand new in a neighborhood that maybe has already been uh, priced in the higher range compared to other neighborhoods uh, in the surrounding area, um, that should be you know a little bit of a warning sign for people knowing that you may not be able to sell your home at a profit or even to maintain its value. I think this is like one of those myths here that like any home you buy is a good investment. Is that actually true? 
that's definitely not true. Um, there are a lot of myths about home ownership, um, especially in the current real estate climate that are just uh, really dangerous for a lot of people. People are moving into cities at a rate we've never seen in history before. Because of that, you create quite a demand in areas that are that just doesn't have a lot of housing. If you're looking to make money on a house, you have to look at an area where you can get something that you know is going to raise in value. Um, uh, you know, that, that may be a little tough for some people because maybe that neighborhood is going to be deemed a little bit less safe than you would prefer. Um, but that's sort of the risk that you take when you get into real estate. How does someone who doesn't like, you know, it when you see it, like, do, yeah. does someone bring someone in with them? Do they bring someone experience with them? Yeah. So I think if, if you're, you know, there, there are two different things. Number one, if you're going to look for a place that's completely finished, you have to expect that you're going to not only buy the house, um, uh, that's going to be a little bit more expensive than something that you know needs renovation, but you have to pay for the builder's profit margin. Uh, knowing that there are people like me out there that are are developers by trade, this is my only job. I will do you know between three and five projects a year. It's always good to understand how something's priced. Jordan is explaining how he prices the homes he sells. He needs to make a profit. I like to get something around the twenty percent profit margin range. That means you know if I put in. Uh, 500, you know, I buy a house for 500 grand. 20% is a standard solid return for someone to feel good about all the effort, time, and capital they've put into an investment. Ask yourself if you want to pay that premium when buying something already renovated. If it costs the developer 700,000 to buy and renovate a home, do you want to pay an additional 140,000 on top of his costs? Or maybe you're able to do it yourself. I mean, I think that's sort of just a good uh, rule of thumb for people who are looking for their first home to consider if they're going to buy something brand new. There's no way around it. If you're buying new or renovated, you're paying a premium for the cost of that renovation and the profit the developer makes. If you think you want to do it yourself, you're buying a home knowing that you're going to put money into it and it won't be perfect right away. Ask yourself if you're ready to take that on and have things stretch out over time. Maybe you'll do your kitchen first, but then when you have enough money later, you can finally build that sick bathroom you've always wanted, the one with the infrared sauna. If you're not going to buy something uh, that's been renovated already, maybe talk to a few builders, talk to a few contractors, find somebody that you trust, maybe have them come and take a look at a place and get their opinions on uh, you know, what it would cost. A lot of developers um, will give you prices based upon the price per square foot. So if they say, you know, I, I build typically at 150 or 170 or 200 bucks a square foot. Well, just take the size of the actual home and multiply that out. And then you can sort of see if you want to completely renovate the home, that's probably what it's going to cost you. So let's say you know what you want, whether brand new, renovated, or needing renovation. At this point, you found something you want to buy. As both a developer and, and as a homeowner myself, I can't tell you how many people have come to my projects uh, just exasperated by the whole process and they've sort of, um, you know, thrown their hands up at some point and said, all right, well, this is the 10th house that we've offered on. Uh, we're even offering over asking price most of the time and we're still not getting these. What, what gives? I mean, how can we actually get a leg up on this? I mean, I think there are a lot of different means to try to make your offer as competitive as possible. Key component of this is being pre-approved. I think a lot of people, you know, will meet an agent, they'll go out on a Sunday, they'll look at maybe three or four projects, they'll say, this is the place we want this one. Uh, they're not pre approved. And then, you know, they have to go through that whole process with a bank. And it sucks, because they really feel like they found something that they want to offer on. 
Okay, we're going to hear the term pre-approved several times during this episode, and it's important that you know what it means. Being pre-approved means that you have been vetted for a mortgage by a bank or lender. You've submitted all your financial information and the mortgage bank has said, yes, we are going to loan you X number of dollars for you to purchase your home. This is essential to when you want to put an offer in on your home because it may come down to which buyer is able to move the quickest in the process. In a competitive market, you're going to offer on and lose out on several properties before you find the one that's going to work for you. But of course, getting pre-approved is only one step. There are so many different costs bundled into this big, life-changing transaction. There are transfer fees, there are closing costs, there are taxes. All of these things come into into play and they are going to add to the purchase price. So if you are pre-approved for, you know, say $600,000 or something like that, uh, you know, and you want to buy a house and you want to offer it 600 grand, well, that's not going to be the end of your costs. You're certainly going to have to pay for more, um, more costs that you didn't foresee. Um, you also have real estate taxes. Uh, you have the transfer tax in DC, um, which amounts to about one and a half percent, a little bit less than that. But um, that comes off of the sale price. You have uh, uh, other various closing costs like the title work. So when you buy a place, um, you are required to be transferred clean title, which means if ownership is disputed, um, say, you know, a family owns a house and, you know, the owner of the house has children and the owner dies and the children inherit a portion of the house. Um, that can be disputed who actually owns the house and who's able to make those decisions. So clean title is important. You want to be able to have insurable title as well so that if there is an issue, you are insured and you don't have to pay for legal fees. It sounds really scary and, and intimidating, but at the end of the day, as long as you know that you're being provided clean title, you should be confident in the fact that you're buying something that is um, legally going to hold water. Uh, on top of that, you know, you may have... Um, a pest inspection. You may have home inspection items that you uh, have requested. And a lot of times the seller will pay for that. But, um, you know, that can be a dispute as well. Sometimes you may want to put some extra dollars in to make a couple customizable changes by the seller. You know, legal fees and title research and all that stuff. Those are numbers that are pretty controllable. But when you get into, say, say I bought a $1.6 million house as opposed to 600000 that transfer tax of about 1.5% can obviously become a pretty big deal. So right. just keep that in mind. Two other costs you should consider. The first one is the property tax, which is the tax on your home by the local government. That helps fund the public schools, the fire department, police, sewage treatment, and other items. The second cost to think about is the homeowners association fee, or the HOA. These are fees that pay for the upkeep of your building if you're buying a condo, or landscaping if you're buying a single family home in a neighborhood. They can also be known as condo fees. Really important in this day and age when with a lot of people living in the city, um, condo fees are something that uh, can absolutely make or break somebody's um, take-home pay. Uh, when you have a mortgage payment, when you own a place and you don't factor in the condo fees, which if you have a nice building with nice amenities can be really extensive, um, some of these condo fees can really change your life and mean that you're going to be what, you know, what we kind of call house poor. House poor. When you're planning for your home, you really need to think about your budget. Sure, your down payment is going to be liquid cash that you're going to invest into your home. But now, you're going to have monthly payments for all these fees and loans, and every year, you're going to have taxes. 
talk with your real estate agent about what these numbers will look like. How much is your monthly income or take-home pay? Is it going to cover all these costs? Well, if you have a substantial condo fee payment, um, that's money that you owe every month. And if you're not making payments on that, that can get you into some legal hot water. So uh, it's, it's important to know that that is definitely something in cities and condo buildings that's going to affect your, your bottom line. Um, what type of maintenance would you expect? Is there, is there like you know, of the 20 homes have you done? Is, it there, is there something that keeps coming up always? You know, utilities, I think a lot of people don't realize if they go from renting to buying, um, you know, you're going to have to pay for all the utilities that may have been included in your previous lease. So that includes uh, obviously water, sewer, gas, electric, uh, cable. Um, these can obviously mount to quite a bit. And then maintenance, uh, maintenance is a big one, Mesh. I think, uh, to own a home, um, and depending on the type of home, like if you own a detached single family house out in the suburbs, uh, you've got to take care of your lawn. You know, you have to maintain your gutters and your roof, uh, your siding or your brick, um, you know, keep your sidewalks and your, your lead walk clear of snow if there's ever a snowstorm. Of course, some of these are examples of services your HOA might provide. You'll be paying for them whether you want them or not. Maybe you're, there's a service that your entire neighborhood bands together to pay for. I mean, these are things that you also definitely have to factor in. As far as coming up with a, an amount that you should expect to pay, um, it's hard to say because, again, I think that is really neighborhood dependent. But I think it's, it would be helpful to bring your real estate agent back into this uh, ask them if they can get, you know, from the seller, uh, kind of what they were expecting to pay every month in utilities. Let's talk about the actual offer on the home. You've done your research. You found the home. It works within your budget. You like the developer. You know all things. You're ready to make an offer. How does that process work? If you like the house, chances are somebody else is going to like the house too. And it, it becomes a competition at this point. So how can you make your offer more attractive? Uh, just, you know, aside from the sheer dollar amount? Well, number one is an escalation clause. Escalation clauses come into play a lot um, in a competitive housing market. What that means is this. If you offer a price on a home, you can insert an escalation clause, which then uh, what it essentially means is your, your price that you would offer on the home goes up um, to try to beat the next highest offer. This is like eBay. You set the highest amount you're willing to spend on an item, but you hope to get it cheaper. If there's a lot of competition, you'll automatically stay in the game by upping your bid, but you'll never go above the amount you've set as your maximum price. That's a big time advantage for people that really want to get a property. If you are able to offer a little bit more money, but you're not sure that you want to just throw it out on the first go around, escalation clauses make you uh, much more competitive. Um, Do you put a cap on that though? Because you don't want to get to a point where like, shit, I just offered yeah. 650 for a home. I don't actually have 650. But, you know, I got the home now and it's way over my budget. Um, obviously, be responsible. Know what your cap is, what your absolute cap is, because a lot of times if you're going to offer um, a cap on this escalation clause, uh, it's going to come into play if it's a competitive house. Um, instead of just offering 650 grand, though, out of the blue, maybe offer less and include that escalation clause so that you're protecting yourself and trying to pay as little above the next highest offer as possible. Mm, so that's one way of being competitive. And tell us some of the, the bigger mistakes that you learned uh, that you wouldn't want to make again. You know, mistakes that I've seen people make, uh, they, they go after something just because they're tired of the process. Look, if it were easy, uh, everybody would be doing it. Um, it becomes really stressful and is really a tough process to wrap your head around. 
you know, it makes a lot of sense to surround yourself with as many experts as possible and get all the different opinions that you can. I think to find a real estate agent that you trust, it's just, again, that's part of the due diligence process. I think you need to have the real estate agent down before you look for any houses at all. Um, it's, it's not only finding the agent, but then it's knowing their process, getting some examples of some things that they've closed before. Everybody sort of has their niche, right? I spoke with several first-time home buyers before putting this episode together. The main thing they agreed upon was absolutely find yourself a great real estate agent. Even with the ability to look at properties online with platforms like Zillow, you still need someone to walk you through this process. But how do you find a great realtor? Sure. Name is Marion Roseanne, affiliated with Compass Real Estate here in Washington, D.C. I asked Compass Real Estate agent Marianne Roseanne. Compass is one of the largest real estate brokerage platforms. They have agents all over the country. Uh, I've been in real estate for, goodness, coming up on about eight years. Marianne walks us through how to find an agent and what one should expect from a great realtor. Given now all the resources, people think they can do it on their own. What is the benefit and importance of using a realtor when buying your first home? It's a big process, right? I mean, it's for many people, it's an, it's an unknown process. The resources online nowadays, first of all, they're amazing. There's never been as much information available as there is uh, you know, today. So it can be a little bit of information overload at times. And frankly, not all of that information we see online is accurate or frankly tells the whole story. Right. And someone who's a first-time home buyer, what is the best process for them to find the right realtor? You know, as with anything, I would probably interview three realtors. Uh, tap into your group of friends. Hey, have you used one in the past that you recommend? Go online. See who in your area has received a, a good number of reviews. Go out for coffee with them. You know, you want to see who's going to be the right fit for you, experience-wise, communication-wise, and just general temperament. You're going to be spending a ton of time with this person, and you just want to make sure you've done the diligence up front because you're going to need to trust them throughout the process, and it would be terrible if you're second-guessing any of the information that they're providing to you during the process. So some things you want to ask, you know, what is their annual volume? It's not necessarily how, how long they've been in the business, right? You can encounter an agent who's been in the business for 20 years, but is only doing a deal a year. That's probably not as effective as somebody who is seeing more and more contracts come through. They're on top of what the market is doing on a day-to-day -day basis. So that might be a better fit for you. And when you find that perfect realtor, they're going to help guide you through the process and the noise. Maybe you're a family who is sensitive about the school district your kids will have access to. Maybe you want a neighborhood that's a little rough around the edges, but in five years, it's going to have a Whole Foods. Maybe you want access to public transportation, or you want space for your dog to run around in. The realtor will help you find the neighborhood that balances your needs with your budget. You know, I, I can point to specific instances uh, here in my market where absolutely, you know, the, the homes are, are valued a little bit lesser uh, because the school district itself is not as uh, highly regarded. And everybody, frankly, is, is going to value different things differently, right? So for instance, last week, it was a, a very highly walkable area. Um, I had a client who she valued the garage parking space more highly than, say, outdoor space, right? Highly walkable, um, less, more congestion, less space for cars. That parking spot uh, commanded a higher value, in her opinion, than, say, outdoor space where she could just as easily walk down the street and you know, be outside at, at one of five coffee shops. Value varies depending on what you're looking for and what is valuable to you. 
the best rule of thumb is time in the market is where you're going to make your money versus timing the market. So if you can find a home and a neighborhood that's going to grow with you and grow with your life, you should be able to stay in that home longer. Therefore, you should be able to weather market fluctuations a little bit better than, say, somebody who potentially purchases a property that's not going to grow with them and or be worthwhile for them in three years, four years, when they have grown their life. They've gotten a dog, they've gotten married, maybe they've had a baby, and now they need to move. So I think the best, the best sound advice is find a property that's going to grow with you for several years, um, because the longer you can hang on to that property, typically speaking, the better off you're going to be. Your agent will also know what metrics you should be paying attention to. We have an enormous amount of information uh, that kind of comes from the source at our fingertips. But if your realtor isn't providing it to you, ask them for it. I think looking at a property across several different metrics is is the most valuable. So is price per square foot uh, a valuable metric? Absolutely. So I think you want to look at price per square foot. You want to look at original list price to sold price ratio. Are properties in that neighborhood, are they going up and over ask price, or are we seeing a little bit of a softening in that market, right? Let's look at sold prices. What's the past? Let's look at under contract prices, you know, and then let's look at what are asking prices currently. And I think looking at all of those metrics in totality is going to really start to get a sense of, um, hey, what is the appropriate value for this property? And I think another kind of valuable uh, item, it's not a net metric necessarily, but Having your realtor speak with the other realtor. Hey, what is what is the offer landscape looking like? Or do you have a lot of interest? Are there a lot of people circling? Or is it you know kind of not popping as much as um, we had expected it to be? This is a big investment, and it takes time to truly understand if you're getting a good price. Is the home you buy similar in price to comparables? If not, why? If cheaper, what renovations does it need? If more expensive, what are you getting for that? Is there still value in buying in that neighborhood or has it already reached its maximum potential? This is what your realtor should be helping you with, a good realtor. Let them earn their commission. Be aware of these factors and test them on it. What do you think are the biggest mistakes that are made by first-time home buyers or just generally home buyers um, when it comes to this process? When it comes to first-time home buyers, what I'm seeing is being too cautious and losing out on great properties out of fear. Right. Uh, I am going to kind of overcompensate potentially on contingencies within a contract uh, because I, I am a little bit leery of what could go wrong. But let's really talk about that. Let's understand the risks associated with um, a home inspection contingency. It's all about being prepared. Speaking of which, what are these contingencies Marianne just mentioned? Contingencies are ifs in a contract. I will purchase this property if I get financing. I will purchase this property if the bank finds value in the property that I have it under contract for. I will purchase this property if the property uh, and the structure itself is to my liking. So home inspection contingency, uh, have a home inspector go into the home, whether that is after the contract has been ratified or before the contract has been ratified to really look at the property, make sure it is a sound property. Of course, they can't look in walls per se, but they can give you um, a good sense of, of what to be aware of with the property, whether that be um, maintenance items moving forward and or existing issues. Kind of look at the electrical panel, look at the plumbing, look at the roof, look at the 
exterior of the property, both in a condo and not in a condo. You want to make sure that, that the integrity of that property is to your liking. Um, I was talking to a developer who said, if you're very comfortable and you know that this is going to be a lot of renovation and you're planning on doing that anyways, and let's say that you don't end up doing a home inspection because you know it's going to take time off the offer. Is that something that you see that happens? Yes, that that developer was exactly correct. There's no reason to go um, inspect the plumbing if you're just going to gut the right. entire place and, and you know redo the plumbing. That would, that would absolutely be probably not in the best interest of everybody. <laughs> but I think it is beneficial to what extent are you going to be renovating? Right. You know, if you are um, in a competitive situation, let's have a home inspector go out there before you even put in an offer with the permission of the seller. Let's see if the foundation is good. Right. Because if we're going to be gutting a home and we're budgeting for that, but yet along the way we find that we actually need to redo some of the foundational parts, that could be a gotcha that could blow up the budget. So I think, you know, there, there's kind of a balance in between those two. I can uh, absolutely see going into a home. If you're going to level it, there's no real benefit to doing a home inspection. But depending on the level of renovation you're going to be doing, I think it's worthwhile. Um, An appraisal contingency? So appraisal contingency, a quick step back for context. Uh, There are three ways to value property, right? There's uh, the appraised value, which is what the lender thinks it's worth. There is the assessed value, which is what the government thinks it's worth. And there's market value, which is what you think it's worth. And you kind of want all of those to be relatively in the same range, right? It's ideal if the assessed value, what the government thinks it's worth, and what your property taxes are based off of, it's ideal if that's super low because you don't want high taxes. The appraised value, that's what the bank thinks it's worth, right? You want the bank to come out and say, you know what? You made a killing on this. This property, we, we value this property $100,000 more than you actually paid for it. That would be fantastic. And then the second one, market value, you kind of want market value somewhere between those two data points. So when it comes to uh, appraised value and the appraisal contingency, the appraisal contingency, if you're getting a loan, is going to be kind of a second second checkbox, if you will, in terms of value. So the bank will go out and say, um, hey, Arian, this is great. You are putting 20% down. We are going to be bringing 80% of the money to the table. We are bringing the lion's share of the money to the table. We want to make sure that we're making a good investment as well. So what the bank will do is go out and make sure they will look at comparables. um, And what they will do is they will assign a value to the property. Now, what you want to do kind of up front is say, all right, let's, let's make sure we're putting in an offer that will potentially not come in over the appraised value, right? So let's say you do put an offer and it turns out to be higher than the appraised value of the property. Well, in this scenario, the bank is only going to put in 80% of the appraised value. To them, that appraised value is all it's really worth. That means if a property has an appraisal value of 450k, but you put in an offer at 500k, you are entirely responsible for the $50,000 difference. The bank is only going to help with the 80% of the lower price. That means you'll be on the hook for 20% of the lower price and the entire price difference. So this is where the appraisal contingency in the contract comes into play. You might decide, you know what, I I can't stomach uh, overpaying for this property. I'm going to walk away. And that's what that uh, appraisal contingency would allow you to do. It would allow you to renegotiate 
the uh, contract price down to the appraised value because in that example, you're only getting 80% of the appraised value from the bank and you're sitting here with a contract price that's higher than that. And in terms of making an offer, obviously you should be pre-approved for a mortgage. Um, what's your checklist of things? My first recommendation uh, and discussion point is, have we spoken to lenders yet? Have you have you spoken to, to local lenders specifically? Um, those who, who know this marketplace the best, those who specialize in, in home mortgage, um, have you had a chance to speak with them and, and get a good sense of um, what you're comfortable affording? Because it's not what you can afford, it's what you're comfortable affording, right? So getting pre-approved is the first step, and that will not only help you, but it will also help your realtor to kind of refine the conversation to say, okay, we're looking at condominiums with a condo fee or co-ops with a co-op or condo fee of X. And that is how we can help to, to kind of narrow in to find that specific property that will help move the conversation forward. So I think it's it's getting pre-approved up front, spending some real quality time, you know, two or so hours going through all of that contract paperwork. Let's get those questions answered up front so that when the time does come to put in that offer, it happens super fast. And the worst thing that you could be doing as a, as a buyer, whether it's first time or repeat, is signing paperwork that you don't know what you're signing. You don't really understand the ramifications of what you're signing. Is potentially the worst situation you can be in. How do you tell people to find the right lender? What are your suggestions for folks? In a competitive market, the bigger banks uh, don't tend to be winning, right? They don't tend to be providing the level of service or the timeframes that are required to get a deal done. When it comes to purchasing a home, what you want to do is uh, find a lender who specializes in home mortgage. The hint there is, Mortgage is typically in the the name. If you know first home mortgage, you know first savings mortgage. Insert name mortgage. You want to find a reputable mortgage lender um, and somebody who's not going to sell you a checking account or a savings account or what have you. At the smaller local mortgage banks, they're the ones who are going to have smaller contingency timeframes, right? So, for instance, a big bank might say we can get uh, your your loan underwritten in thirty days. Uh, a smaller mortgage lender might be able to say, Marion, this is great. Uh, I can get it done in seven. I can get it done in 14, something a little bit shorter. So you're kind of putting your seller hat on if you're looking at two contracts that are identical, but you know one has a financing contingency of seven days and the other one has a financing contingency of 30 days. You as the seller with everything else being equal, are probably going to say, you know what? This person's getting through the, the financing woods faster. This, if it does fall apart, is going to fall apart faster. I can then put it back on the market sooner. Real quick, one more contingency to go over, I promise. Financing contingency means that you'll move forward on the contract for the home if the financing or specifically the mortgage from the bank is approved. Depending on the bank you've chosen, some take less time to make a decision than others. Being pre-approved helps because it means you've done a lot of the work up front and provided all the necessary information, and it will allow the bank to move quicker to make their final decision. I'm more apt to go with, with the individual who's working with, um, you know, let's call him John over at XYZ Mortgage. I can actually pick up the phone and talk to John. I don't have to dial 1-800 and oops, you know what? They're closed on the weekends. And it's highly likely you're not going to find your, your home 
Monday through Friday, nine to five. That is very good advice given especially all the new lenders that exist online. And um, which brings me to my next question, cash versus mortgage, does it matter? Um, sellers do react uh, a little bit better to cash depending on the property, how long it's been on the market. You, you might have the opportunity uh, if you're not having to work with a lender, if you're not having to complete an appraisal, you've basically certain two contingencies right there. Um, there might be a little bit of leeway in terms of pricing. Right. Hey, I am the purchaser. I'm bringing a, a cleaner offer to you. As a result, I would like a you know a little bit of a haircut on the price. Depending on the market, that that may or may not happen. Um, from a seller's perspective, cash is usually king. However, this is about budgeting for yourself. What's the opportunity cost to investing all your cash on one deal? After all, you could invest your money elsewhere to diversify, so all your eggs are not in just one basket. Maybe you should keep your cash on hand for any future planning. So maybe you shouldn't make a cash offer just to get a large deal done. More likely, you're going to need a mortgage. And that's what we'll be tackling in the next episode. If you can get a mortgage, that is the cheapest option. Um, but we are definitively better than renting. We're also going to look into the future of home buying and how companies are pioneering some interesting solutions for non-traditional buyers. I'd like to thank my guests, Jordan Grice and Marianne Rassan for sitting down with us. Please find their information in the show notes. Remember, you can see the written format of this episode and others on thetalkmoney.com. Please subscribe to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you choose to listen. And if you like this episode, please share it with your friends. I'd also like to thank my producer and editor, Max Miller, and the folks in Anchor for their hospitality. Our music is by Blue Dot Sessions. And don't forget to listen to part two of this episode next week. Until next time. This episode is for informational purposes only, and listeners should not construe information, interviews, analysis, or other material embodied within the episode as legal, tax, investment, financial, or other advice. This episode and its contents are intended to be of a general nature, and listeners are advised to seek professional financial advice in connection with any personal investment decisions.